Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Down we're on. Today's guest, we've got the gorgeous Angela Trainer. How are you, first of all? Oh, I'm grand. I'm very grand indeed. Yeah, all good. the better for seeing you. <laughs> That's the kind of gift I've got, you know what I mean? <laughs> You've um, led a very interesting life yourself, Angela. Um, TED, TEDx speaker, author. You've been a psychotherapist. Psychotherapist. Psychotherapist for over 30 years. You've been founder of the Harvest Clinic in Glasgow. Indeed. Um, you battled cancer there. You beat cancer which is the main one. So first of all, congratulations. Well, thank you. Uh, I hope I'm not being too premature with that, but I always believe in great positivity. So uh, we'll say that, yes, uh, certainly I've put the treatment behind me and uh, I plan to make a full and complete, uh, rec full recovery. Obviously, I'm only a few months out of a year of treatment. So we've got a wee bit to go in terms of full return to energy. But um yeah, my energy's doing very, very well indeed. Good. Proud of you. Thank you, sir. Fighting fit again, which Thank is a you. good thing. It's always a positive. But we'll go right back to the start, Angela. Kind of where you grew up and how your life began and led to where you are just now. So I had a really blessed, really privileged life uh, in that I had two hard-working parents that were both reared uh, from, you know, a working-class background. Um, my, my grandfather... Uh, worked with his hands. He was a stonemason uh, originally and went on to more engineering type jobs in later life. And my other, my paternal grandfather worked in the railways and then worked in the unions and then eventually worked in government uh, and in fact was involved in the development of the special unit. He was he was uh, head of the visiting committee, the special unit in Berlin. That was one of his his. Uh, things that he was most proud of um, so he went on to become a Strathclyde Regional Councillor he was a magistrate for many years but you know a humble guy that started out in the railways um, seven in one family five in the other 
fairly typical of its days. Uh, origins beginning in the east end of Glasgow and and, and, and one side of the family in the Gorbals. Uh, if we go back generationally to immigrants from Ireland, uh, in the in the days of the of your of the famine fame, uh, who came over to Glasgow to Scotland, so um, you know, for, you know, from from little acorns, great things sprang in my grandparents, and they brought up hardworking, you know, uh, people with strong uh, moral values and integrity uh, that, that that had um, a really good work ethic. So. For that, I'm grateful to my parents. Mm -hmm. They instilled that in in me. Um, And they got together uh, and my father had had a a healthy dose of ambition. Um, My mum was a stay-at-home mum, as was the way in the 1960s. Uh, Married one minute, pregnant the next. Um, And I had two younger brothers. So we had a very blessed life in that my parents built their own house because my grandfather was a stonemason uh, and got lots of favours from the building site, pals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they built a house uh, out in Mogai, a wee, a wee bungalow. And that was a, a very big thing in those days. Um, and my father was made redundant when I think I was about seven. And uh, that was, he worked in advertising, outdoor advertising. And when television came along, uh, they, they, basically made him redundant. I said, mm-hmm. we don't, we're not going to need billboards anymore. Um, so he was, he struggled a lot with with the situation because at, at that point he had three kids and a wife to support. And he um, went to his father and uh, asked him if he would help him to set him up in business. And he went straight away and got his life savings and handed them to him. £1,500, his life savings. said, on you mm-hmm. go, son. Uh, so my father did on he went and he built up over the years with a lot of struggle and a lot of time and I originally got out and built posting the posters himself and went on to build a very, very successful outdoor advertising company. But he's, he, my father said that his greatest joy was going back to my grandfather when my grandfather was, I think, in his 80s with a briefcase and he'd worked out how much the money would be with interest because he did pay him back his £1,500 eventually. Um, but he, he he took him, I think it was something like £30,000 mm-hmm. and went in and said, there you go, Dad. That's it with interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, which my fa- grandfather promptly gave away to the rest mm-hmm. of the family. But uh, investment then, well, money well spent then. So that, that's just a wee bit about the history mm-hmm. of the family. So it was a, so working a, class a, parents, a blessed, yeah. you know, blessed. So your dad, who worked in a special unit, I've interviewed a couple. My grandfather. Of, your grandfather. I've interviewed a couple of the guys who've been in, who were in the special unit, not he, working, but. He um, knew Jimmy Boyle well. Yeah, uh, uh, Joe Steele, uh, Johnny Steele, yeah. who's a good friend of mine, yeah. was in the special unit. Yeah. Um, which was wild in there. Quite an amazing yeah. place. So the psychotherapy kind of things. Over 30 years in industry, what made you get into that? So, from this very blessed, solid background, um, uh, I decided that I was going to go to, to university and I, tra- I trained in psychology, but I had no desire to work in psychology. I wanted to be a music teacher. But by the time I left university, I absolutely didn't want to be a music teacher when I saw what was going on in my brother's schools, um, my two younger brothers. So, I um, met the handsome prince, 
Uh, and uh, the handsome, not me, by the way. Uh, and the handsome prince uh, was an Englishman, and uh, we got together. Uh, in those days, it didn't seem that young, but it was young. Twenty-two, we mm-hmm. were married, um, and nine months later, he ran off with another princess. Uh, so literally, I had the big meringue wedding. You know, the shame was enormous because I was the first person in the history of generations of my family uh, to bring the shame of divorce, <laughs> you know, to the family garden, to the party. Uh, so that left me in an awful mess. Mm-hmm. Um, we'd literally, months before, moved into our marital home and I was saddled with that. He, he literally disappeared. I didn't see him for two years. I didn't see him until the night before the divorce and only because I asked someone to to ask him if he would help me bury the body. Uh, that I needed it. I needed closure. Um, so got, uh, got divorced. Now, after he left, I, I fell into what the medical profession uh, would call a depression. I would call it a broken heart. Um, I don't think that depression is a particularly helpful term. It's, 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 you know, it's a very vague expression. Mm-hmm. So this was specifically a, a state of brokenheartedness. And whilst I took the tablets, I took the antidepressants to help me get up and get dressed and get to work, um, I had a very forward-thinking GP who said, would you think it would be useful to talk to someone? You're very young, you know, to, to experience this. So anyway, I did. I went to see a psychotherapist, uh, Dr. Bob White, and worked with him over a fairly hefty period of time. And, you know, did a lot of emotional archaeology, during which time I unearthed, you know, a lot of heartbreak in my early life related to childhood sexual abuse. Um, And I, over the course of subsequent psychotherapy, dealt with other issues that were there. And and some of those issues were related to sexual assault as a a young adult. Um, And I had to deal with this abandonment issue uh, from my husband into the bargain. So psychotherapy became the way to rebuild myself from the inside out for me. It It was like rewiring me from the inside out. And as a result of that, I later decided that I wanted to train in therapy myself. I wanted to become a therapist because I knew what it had done for for Mm. me. I really don't think I would be here today without it. Yeah. I really don't. Psychotherapy, for people watching, what is psychotherapy? So psychotherapy is a very, very broad uh, expression that covers, uh, you know, a a huge continent. fundamentally it's where you apply theories of psychology in a therapeutic way in other words counselling but from a specific psychological perspective so it's much more interactive than maybe what some people would expect from counselling where they think maybe you're just going to sit and listen and nod that's not just what counselling is Um, but psychotherapy tends to take a an approach, and there will be a style, maybe an analytical style or a directive style. Um, and the type that I had was quite analytical and that meant that the therapist I had was very interested in right from the very beginning, you know, what was going on for you as a child? What what made you the person you are that's led you to where you are now? Mm-hmm. And what is it we need to unpick, unpack and heal um, Is that getting all the root of the problems? Getting to the root of the problem. So, and, and interestingly, my style of, of therapy today 
uh, I've, I've, I've coined a phrase very recently, in fact, that say, you know, peel it, feel it and heal it, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, and, and it's like peeling back the layers of an onion to look at what's going on in there. Um, you know, very similar to some of the, the approaches of the 12 step uh, you know, movements where they, they in their fourth step they'll, they'll, they'll do the, mm-hmm. the list of defects. It's looking at where's the patterns? Let's look at what's not working for you, you know, yeah. what's not right? And is there a pattern in there? Mm-hmm. Well, you need to know your pattern mm-hmm. and, and you need to be able to identify it and you need to, uh, to heal it, you know, and then you need to be aware of it today. Mm-hmm. How is that running my motor? Are you okay with no, that? No, this is Ian the cat, <laughs> by the Ian way. This is Ian the one-eyed cat. Yeah. No, I was fine, man. Just get him his, his bit of attention. <laughs> you know, be saying that if he, if he digs his claws right That's fine. Um, so that is the main... So because of all the... Because of the trauma you'd went through back in the past, the heartache, the heartbreak, did you do that to try and understand how you were feeling? And once you changed that, you realised this works... And that's how you wanted to try and help others? I think originally I did it to survive. I think there was a part of me that knew suicidal? I couldn't do it more. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, I didn't get as far as actually carrying anything out. I remember one night being in a bath that was cold and there was no hot water left. And that was like the straw that broke the camel's back. Mm-hmm. I, I was in my parents' house and I was like, that's it. That's it. I really can't take it anymore. You know, thank goodness I couldn't find a big razor. Um, mm-hmm. Because that, I remember that night thinking, I really can't take it anymore. You know, I can't even turn my tap on and get a hot bath. You know, that's how useless as a human being I am. Uh, so certainly I felt, yes, I felt suicidal. Um, and that was the, the point where when support and help was mentioned, mm-hmm. I knew I had to reach out and I'd say that's the biggest thing that I learned was to reach out and say, I can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't fight the voices in my head anymore that are telling yeah. me it must be me. Were you drinking or anything at the oh, time? I, 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 I would use anything that I could get my hands on at that time, which thankfully for me, uh, illegal drugs weren't immediately available. I'm sure I would have been on them if they had mm-hmm. been, uh, <laughs> but that wasn't the circle that I moved in. Uh, but certainly I do remember, you know, coming in at night with a bottle of wine in my handbag and kind of sneaking past, the, you know, my mother would be in the kitchen because I'd moved back mm-hmm. home at that point uh, and sneaking past to go upstairs and, and knowing that that, I didn't want to be open about it. You know, I was 22 years mm-hmm. of age, 23 years of age. I should have been able to do whatever I wanted. Yeah, but knowing that it wasn't a social glass of wine, it was a medicinal glass of wine. Mm-hmm. I just needed something to calm my nerves and to calm me down and to um, give me a bit of pain relief. So I, I realised early on it wasn't a social thing and it wasn't it wasn't like I came in and said let's have a glass of wine mm-hmm. let's sit down together and put that in the fridge it was, I knew there was a shame attached to yeah. it so um, you know I, I used food I, I used alcohol at times I used relationships later on um, to numb some of this pain that was around and uh, and thank God I was able to with the help of psychotherapy, with the help of analysis to look at what the actual pains were inside that were driving some of these behaviours. Mm-hmm. But this is what we've got. This is the beauty of life because all that stuff, the suicidal thoughts, the potential alcoholic, if you've never done all that shit, then you're not going to be sitting here. You're not going to have spoke to the thousands of people that you've spoke to to help change their life, to help rewire their brain to become 
understanding of their life and their faults. So it, it takes courage to change. And I put a post up yesterday. And listen, there's so many different theories with suicide, but from there I am from, there's a lot of people who turn to drugs. And I know people say it might be fun. Nobody turns out to be an addict. But if you've got trauma, if you've got pain, then those stuff will numb it for a certain extent mm. where that bit of fun will turn into misery and fun and end by the end it will just turn mm. into misery mm. so for me the drink the drugs everybody's got issues in this world I don't care mm. who you are yeah. the, the Buddhas the Dalai Lama everybody's still got issues mm. but the drink the drugs will give you the courage to push you over the edge to make it will rip away at your soul when it comes to a stage where mm. you think the only option is suicide how how do you feel about like, this rise in suicide and stuff now, what do you think for your opinion is the major shift for people really taking their life? I think the, the world is in a, a pretty shaky state at the moment. You know, I, I think we've got some really serious uh, big problems around. It's been a very interesting time to be on the planet uh, for many of us. And I think, uh, you know, many, many people seem to be being called to, you know, come to the fore and, and, and help uh, with the hopelessness uh, that could could win out if it wasn't challenged. Um, so I think, you know, certainly changing roles, um, the, the world that we're living in here in the West, you know, which if we look at the figures for uh, sleeping pills, for antidepressants, you know, the, mm. the amount of clinical uh, biochemical um, interventions that are getting handed out on a daily basis just to help people make it through the night. So I think quite possibly the lack of, of training for many of us in developing our souls and developing a strength in the inside and getting um, an emotional backbone, you know. We've, we've kind of been sold a message that it's all about, you know, how you look and what you've got and Labels. what you can get and mm -hmm. all the externals, uh, you know, the shopping mall and the supermarket and, you know, the holiday home, mm -hmm. that, that these things are the things that make us and are going to make us wonderful and happy. And I think many, many people are realising that these things are not going to make us yeah. happy. It's how we are on the inside like that makes the difference. Yeah, as if we've been getting fed a lie since we were born. Yeah. What's right and what's wrong. Deep inside, I believe we know what's right. I believe everybody's got the answers. I believe you call it the onion as well, where you just wrap yourself around so much shit, whether it's mm. the fancy watch or the car. It is, it's an illusion. It doesn't really mean shit. And I sp listen, I've been watching a man called Sam, Sam Fankin, I think his name is, and he's talking about since social media has became so popular, I think they're saying two billion people are on social media. Since social media has been here for the last 10, 15 years, there's been a 60% rise in suicide. Hmm. Hmm. So I think anything that helps to isolate is, is part of the problem. You know, anything that encourages to to disconnect, you know, I think I think that in the 33 years that I've worked with people in the consulting room and from my own life and my own experience, um, you know, I believe that we're here to relate. I believe we're here to love. Now, that mm. doesn't mean we need to have a romantic relationship with everybody we meet, but that that's why we're here. We're here to learn how to love and we're here to learn how to love ourselves. And we need connection. You know, we need interaction with each other. We need to rub up against each other uh, emotionally, physically and spiritually. And uh, we need community. And that's one of the things that our culture's lost. 
or is losing, mm. or it certainly is in great danger of losing in many areas, um, is community. And that's why uh, I, I, I believe that for people to become suicidal, they need to begin to feel disconnected, mm. alienated, isolated, uh, terribly frightened and afraid to reach out, afraid mm. to pick up the phone, afraid to say, I'm not okay, you know, look beneath the, the mask. You know, don't be fooled by the mask I wear. Um, and I, I think that's part of it. I think that's what what will save us is our ability to come together as communities and to be to be able to be vulnerable, to be able to say, I'm not OK all the time. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I have problems, I have issues. And to be able to connect with each other without that need to be perfect, which was the subject of my, my TED talk, um, the curse of perfection, the curse of perfect. Mm-hmm. This world that we live in of, you know, TV and magazine, that, uh, magazines that are telling us how we should be, how we should look based on illusion, because these people don't even look like that or live like that. Mm-hmm. But we aspire to be like them. Uh, nobody loves that world, but we think we should be doing it. We should mm-hmm. be. And then, of course, you know, one of the biggest things is often people that do do get it. They, they win the lottery. They, 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 they get the financial rewards to live that life. That's one of the things that they say about it. It's the worst thing that ever happened to me. Yeah. I think that people who win the lottery, there's a high percentage. I think it's like the people who win major in the lottery, the big ones, there's like 70% of them end up divorced hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's cousin kevin's kazoo concert in kansas city go kevin or becky's bachelorette bash in bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again so download the priceline app today your savings are waiting go to your happy place for a happy price It brings its own problems. You Mm -hmm. you have to suddenly deal with envy. Mm -hmm. You have to deal with other people's greed. You have to deal with uh, jealousy, you know, people who are going to resent you uh, because it's all right for you. And of course, you can't have any problems Mm -hmm. anymore because you've got the money. I've put as destination addicted to, what is it? Addicted to a new destination or something where people think the grass is always greener on the other side. They think the new car, the new relationship, whatever it is, is going to fulfil them. But mm. when they get it, they realise it's not going to fulfil me because they still feel like shit. Well, they- that 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 I I I certainly know from the consulting room that that my clients come from all walks of life, and that includes the fabulous, gorgeous models, you know, who who. Uh, a lot of women would aspire to be like. I've seen it from the other side. Um, and the wealthy, wealthy, wealthy millionaires and billionaires who've got it all, who are still saying, I'm not happy, mm-hmm. I'm miserable, I'm depressed. So what we do know and we can conclude is that's not where it's at. But that's what we've been taught to think, mm-hmm. that when I have X, Y or Z, then I'll be happy. And actually, it's an in and down job. It's not an out and up job. Mm-hmm. It's difficult to get because a lot of people have got too much pride, including myself, and I've worked a lot to get to where I am today, but I still know I've got a lot of fucking work to do still with insecurities, the jealousy, the anger. Still got a lot to work mm-hmm. on, but I will not shy away from it. We spoke yeah. earlier, I'll identify with it, and I'll work 
daily to try and make the changes because Absolutely. I believe people can change. I've spoke to many people who have changed. I speak to a lot of people who say they've changed and I know deep inside that they may be lying. Do you know what I mean? But I'm not saying that, but anybody can change that and no matter who you are, no matter what you've come from, no matter your past, no matter your age, if you believe in yourself, if you take the time, if you work on yourself daily, you can change the neural pathways, you can have a better life, you can have a better understanding. And I always say, knowledge is power. Educate yourself. Read. Hmm. Learn. Because I talk all the time. People always say, oh, listen. I, I try and listen as much as I can, but if I'm constantly talking, then I'm only going to repeat what I know. Mm. Everybody knows that. Some, everybody knows something that we don't. So if I, people are talking, then I'll learn more. So for me, it is another one is to listen. Mm-hmm. I love to talk. I love to give my opinion and advice. I feel as if I know everything. Mm. When really I'm learning, learning from you, learning from Nick, learning from everybody. Do you know what I mean? It's learning from Ian. Learning from Ian here. Just how to sit and be calm in front of the camera. Um, and so, it's an ongoing job, isn't it? I mean. A, number one, who would want to be with somebody that was perfect? Let's be honest. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't. I, I don't want to hang out with somebody that's perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think our perfection is in our imperfection and is learning to enjoy, um, you know, the messiness of life is is the fact that I'm messy, you're messy. The world is messy. It's, it's mm-hmm. all messy. It's designed to be messy. You know, there's up, down, in, out, summer, winter, good and bad. And if we get into judging it, we just say, look, I'm, I'm, and some t- some days are going to be better than others. And when is it I most learn the art of unconditional love? It's not when I'm perfect and I'm doing everything right and I pat mm-hmm. myself in the head. You know, the real test of unconditional love is when I really screw up and I'm able to wrap my arms around myself and say, it's okay. Mm-hmm. Do you know? This world is quite a complicated place yeah. and it's no mean feat to na- to mm-hmm. navigate it with your history and other people with their histories yeah. and all of it. It's it's not a simple thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you mentioned, you know, the Dalai Lama, the, the greats, the Mother Teresa's. You read their works and they'll tell you, you know, I am human too. Mm-hmm. I have my foibles. I maybe just have spent a lot more years and a lot more time on working on them and recognising them and being able to rein them in from time to time. But even they would tell you, you know, they haven't mastered it either. If you're here on this planet, you've probably not mastered everything. There's always something to learn. There's always, every day you're going to be learning. And I believe the most testing times of your life when you're in the fire, when you don't believe there's another way out, that's when you truly, truly find who you are Mm. and how capable you are. And as there's sayings about it all the time, but you've, everybody survived 100% of their worst days. People are a lot stronger than what they think. Mm. It's just to find that inner strength. And I can do amazing things. I can interview people. I can hit big numbers. I can do this. But again, that disappears. I've got to keep going because I can hit a flat line for two or three days where I'll just sit in the house and you kind of doubt it all. I'll question everything. Why am I doing it? But you've just got to keep pushing through, man. Mm-hmm. And it's, including yourself, you would have studied it all. But mm. you would have had your down days. Mm. But you felt fucked or you couldn't For be asked. Sure. Do you know what I mean? Because you're taking For a sure. lot of people's energies. You're exchanging a lot of energies and, and listening to other people's stories, yeah. which is just all pain and constant. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? So you're going to go home and go, that's tiring. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. And, and uh, you know, pain's good for us. 
mm-hmm. you know uh, I'm a great fan of John of the Cross who, wrote, who, who coined the phrase the dark night of the soul there's a lot of diamonds to be mined in the dark night you know the darkness is where we, we most easily see the light and it's not easy being in the painful times it's not easy being in the dark but it is a huge part of our lives and one of the things I think that causes us our greatest problems is the idea that one day we'll get to this, what I call the happy land plateau and we'll never know pain again. We'll be sorted. We'll be fixed. No, no, forget that. Mm-hmm. Ditch it now and you'll find more happiness. Uh, you're always going to screw up. You're always going to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. And it's good for you because it teaches you humility. Mm-hmm. You know, it teaches you that you're not, a, you're not an angel. You're not a saint unless you are. Um, mm-hmm. And if you can accept that, but you do your best, you know, you do your best to say, I want to try and be the best person I can be today. But there will be days I won't achieve that. There'll be days where I'm giving people mm-hmm. signals in the motorway that I wouldn't want to be mm-hmm. showing on my Facebook page. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's if I can still love myself, right? It doesn't mean I don't say that's not acceptable behaviour. That wasn't a nice thing to do, really. And I don't like it when people do that to me, so it's not nice. Don't do that. Um, I find myself doing it a week later. I don't get a big stick out and batter myself in the head. That's not going to help. What's going to help is recognising what what is it about somebody cutting you off in the motorway that gets you that upset? What was it about that? And finding that wee vulnerable person inside, they, they won. They win mm-hmm. it. And I, I never win at anything. And I'm, you know, and, and the loser part of me, if I can find the wee child inside that feels like a loser, I don't need to give hand gestures on the motorway nearly as much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I could spend the time wasting my time beating myself up for doing the wrong thing, or I can explore in the darkness of it, the pain. Mm-hmm. What's, what's up? What's really up? What's that really about? It's not about somebody cut in front of you. Because mm-hmm. they moved, you know, two seconds in front of you in the motorway. See, to make those changes, Angela, um, people who get angry at certain things and these trigger points, it becomes just a norm for them mm-hmm. that they don't even know they're doing it anymore. But if you can identify with it and try and stop it, which is difficult, but the more you do it, the more you can change the neural mm-hmm. pathways, the more it will disappear. Yeah. Is that correct? Well, you know, my, my, my wee thing about peel it, mm-hmm. you know, feel it and heal it. Uh, peeling back the layers of the onion to what? What's she like? Wow, what's this about? You know, well, he, she did that to me. He did that to me. They did this to me. Um, okay, let's feel it. And what? How does that make you feel? You know, what's the feeling inside? Is it angry? Right? What's behind the anger? Now, ninety nine percent of the time, what's behind the anger is pain, is hurt. So it's peeling away till you find the hurt part and then you show up for that hurt part today. If I look for my husband to do it, it'll be a temporary band-aid. If I look for my pals to do it over a coffee or a glass of wine, it'll be a temporary elastoplast. But if I can go in there, if I can dive into the darkness and say, where is this part that's hurting? Because of whatever the external event is. What is it? How far back is this going in me? If I can sit with that part of me and just love it, you know, just breathe with it, just be there with her, just actually be present to the hurting place, 
the soft place inside. So this is where you get expressions like, you know, your strength is in your vulnerability. What does that mean? It means sitting with yourself in the dark and saying, what's it really about? No, go deeper, go deeper, go deeper. What's it really about? Where's the feeling? And if I can allow myself to really feel the feeling, like, oh, you know, I'm not good enough, or everybody else is better than me, or no one will ever love me, or if they really knew me, they wouldn't like me. Do you know? Whatever that feeling is, if I can sit there today and just wrap my arms around that part and say, it's okay, I'm here, I love you, Mm -hmm. I've got you. It's all right. It's going to be okay. Would you think for anybody watching who's maybe struggling with stress or anxiety, what advice would you have for them just now? Um, That stress and anxiety is an absolutely normal part of life and especially today in our culture with all that's going on. Of course, we've got things our parents and grandparents didn't have. We've got 24-7 on the spot news, you know, bringing us disasters from all around the world in a way that people didn't have to deal with in the past in nearly the same way. So we're constantly getting fed all the disasters that are going on. It's not surprising that we're stressed and we're anxious. And we're going at a thousand miles another an hour. What I would say is um, stress can be a good thing. Stress can be a useful thing to a degree in certain ways. It's when we experience stress on an ongoing basis and we don't get a respite from it or worse, we become addicted to the adrenaline and that's what many of us are doing. We're actually getting that our systems are used to running Mm. at really, really fast high levels and we can't get off the gravy. You know, we, we just literally can't get off it. We're being fed by the stress. So we end up creating scenarios that keep us stressed to keep giving us the buzz of adrenaline. So we have to look at how we're going to downgrade and downsize our adrenaline levels. And the first thing is awareness, always naming it. You know, is this an acceptable, healthy kind of up and down level of stress that I have? No, it's up there, full on, fifth gear, uh, locked in syndrome. Um, That's going to affect you, not just mentally and emotionally, but physically. The chronic? The chronic stress. It's going to affect your organs. It's going to affect your body. So you really need to take action. Of of, of course, a lot of people are going to say, just take a tablet, take a this, take Mm -hmm. a that, take a glass of wine. Uh, And all of these things will work in the short term for a while. But inevitably, they become addictive. So two things. One, you need to learn sustainable methods of coming down out of fifth gear and using fourth, third second, first um, and the, they'll be the classic things known to people, uh, meditation yoga, relaxation, self-hypnosis stress management you know, that's one thing, the other thing is looking at your life and saying what what are the hot spots, it's not, it's not enough just to put these things into place if all you're doing is allowing it to continue to drive at a thousand miles an hour, mm-hmm. also looking at and, and where am I putting myself? What am I investing in in my life? And is it serving me? Is it working for me? And sometimes in life, we have to say, this ain't working for me anymore. I need to change things. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we need to be willing to do part, that. Though, the change is a difficult part. I've been doing a lot of research the last few weeks on uh, trauma bonding. As a f- Stock- is it Stockholm Syndrome? Mm-hmm. So bank robbers, I believe, robbed a bank in Sweden took the hostages but the hostages started falling in love with them mm-hmm. because 
when they weren't getting killed, they started they was releasing serotonin and endorphins <laughs> where they were starting to go grow feelings for them, feel mm-hmm. sorry for them, show empathy. Mm-hmm. And that is a true thing called Stockholm Syndrome mm-hmm. where trauma bonding is for people that's in abusive relationships, mm-hmm. maybe getting beat up. Mm-hmm. Even, listen, this just happens with girls, this also happens with boys, mm-hmm. where mentally mm-hmm. getting tortured, but they're so attracted with the adrenaline rush and the mood swings that, that will send them so high where there's so much hatred towards them, but the day they're nice, they start feeling empathy, sympathy, they love me more, and then you start getting that connection, even mm-hmm. though you know it's wrong. Mm-hmm. I don't know, I've just butchered that there, but I'm, I'm just trying to understand no, you're not it. On kind of trying to study mm-hmm. it to, to get it because it kind of makes sense for Because anybody can walk out the door in relationships they don't like, has certain jobs, but there's something there that keeps, keeps them, them there. So can you elaborate on Yeah, so how, how we get hooked. Yeah. You know, we get hooked to chemicals and we have biochemicals in our brain. You've got a boots chemist in here. So we get hooked on, on things that are not good for us, on substances that aren't good for us and on people who aren't good for us, but create substances on which we, we can learn, we can become addicted to. Uh, so becoming addicted to drama, becoming addicted to chaos. Um, even though you would say, ah, oh, I don't want to be like this. You know, why am I always making myself late? Why am I never organised? Why am I? But but it, but there's a payoff somewhere. And even if that payoff is the biochemistry of you like the adrenaline, you like the buzz, it gives you a buzz. You get something out of it. Um, some people will say the one thing that they could, you know, like, a lot, a lot, it was a great guy called Anthony DeMello uh, wrote one of the best but one, I th- think one of my favourite books in the world it's, called, it's a, wee th- a wee book it's called Awareness he's dead now um, so oh, no he doesn't like you doing that he'll, he'll scratch you he will scratch you I'm not kidding you on um, so Anthony DeMello's book Awareness when he says I can tell you the secret to happiness and bliss I can tell you what it is but you'll not want to hear it you'll not like it because what you call happiness is excitement. Real happiness at the moment, most people would call it boring. Real happiness, they would find boring. They would say, is this it? What what now? What's next? What's happening? Because they're not at that altitude. They they would find that altitude boring. Um, So so what they call happiness is really excitement. Mm -hmm. Feeling thrilled. Is and the thing is, that people, thrill is yeah, very addictive. Sorry, Angela, is that why a lot of people who's maybe in relationships, we, they start off in relationships with really good people, yeah. treat them fucking really well. They could do everything for them, make them happy. But then the, everybody shouts, they want a good guy, they want a good girl. They get me, some point you get it, but it just doesn't feel you've not got that excitement, even though you know they're good people, but you prefer that thrill where. Because they say if you meet someone, you've got the butterflies, the knees are going mm. weak, mm. you're feeling excited. The they say that that's, as a psychologist that say that's not the, what you should be looking for. When you meet someone and you're calm, that's where there's a me- more mental connection and there's more, you're in tune with each there's, other. There's, there's something deeper. I mean, nature's designed us really well and that we, we, we have these honeymoon periods that we do fall in love uh, of course, it's got very little to do with love because love isn't a feeling. Love is a verb, you know. Mm-hmm. Love love is an action. Love is something you do. You get up in the morning and you say, I'm going to love today. 
I'm going to be loved today. Uh, but our culture has told us about a thing called romance, which is really just thrill and excitement. And that is very much based on new and feeding my ego. You know, so focusing all of your attention on me and telling me how wonderful I am. Uh, and of course, that's very seductive. And, and it's very clever because nature does this so that we fall in love and we procreate and we keep the species going. So mm -hmm. it's it's quite a good thing from a, an evolutionary point mm -hmm. of view that it happens. Uh, but the thing is, we can't sustain that over time. Um, now, we can learn practices to help us to, to sustain it more uh, than maybe we would naturally do. We get a bit lazy and flabby in relationships. Yeah, you meet, you fall in love, it's great for a while. And then you get a bit cavalier. You get a bit lazy and you stop doing the things. Mm -hmm. One of the first things we would do in couples therapy is ask the question, what did you do early in your relationship that you're not doing now? You know, what were some of the things that you did for each other and you said, or you wouldn't ever have dreamt of doing? Begin to bring those things back. You know, now you can't necessarily live at that altitude with, you know, two dogs and three kids and, and, and both working full time where you're just constantly making each other number one 24-7. But you can bring some of the things back, like the way you speak to each other, you know, that would you speak that way if you were in the supermarket queue? Would you, would you speak that way if there was a live video cam in your living room watching you having this discussion? No, you wouldn't if you mm -hmm. thought anybody was watching. So why are you doing it? You know, so bringing back some of those things that we did in the beginning, uh, even though we can't do all of them all of the time, because it is quite a selfish time when a relationship's early on, you know, people will spend as much time as they can together. They'll make each other number one priority. If they'll mm -hmm. ditch their pals uh, and then life kind of creeps back in again. But it's how can you keep just some of those things going? Um, and also, how can you deepen your love so that your love becomes more um, mature? And it's about doing love, practising love, uh, supporting each other, encouraging each other to be the best they can be, uh, rather than this childish, egotistical, feed me. Mm -hmm. Tell me how great I am. Tell me how wonderful I am. And often that comes from a place where we're very empty inside. Certainly it was for me, you know, when I think back um, over many relationships that were, were, were you know, not healthy in my early years about my own lack of self-worth, my own lack of self-esteem from some of the traumas that I'd experienced in my own life. See some people who come in for couples therapy, was there ever a time you thought, well, it's good that they're trying to work on each other, but was there ever a time you says, look, the two of you are great, it's good that you are trying, but it's just there's just something not there where it's best if you part ways? I, I would never say that to a couple. Mm -hmm. I, I would try and support a couple to recognise that really, you know. It's, having said that, the fact that they're there, unless somebody's really selling out and doesn't want to be there, that, that would be for me telling me that they both on some level did want the relationship mm -hmm. to work. Now, whether they were willing and able to make the sacrifices and the changes that would allow it to work, you know, but I've seen marriages that anyone else would call a car crash, relationships that, that many people would call a complete car crash and you can never come back from that, mm -hmm. you know, he's done this or she's done that. If two people are both committed to the bigger picture and that is the relationship. So for many of us, 
um, we don't see that part. We see it as just him and her rather than there's a third party there. Mm -hmm. And that is the relationship. Mm -hmm. And of course, for many people, there's kids involved. So there's a family. It's not just about the yeah, him and her. Just them. Um, if they are willing to, you know, to, to commit for the greater good of the relationship or the family, mm -hmm. uh, I've seen people come out of huge car crash relationships and begin to learn some of the tools that sadly aren't taught in school yeah, where they should be. To learn that we're all going to make mistakes. So f for me, if I meet someone, trust is everything for me. Mm. So if somebody breaks my trust, it's done. Mm. I, I can't forgive. Mm. What What is that then? What is that blockage? That Do you trust yourself? I don't think so. Right. So there's the place we start mm -hmm. all the time. Is mm -hmm. whatever I would see about them, I need that from them. Do I do it? So, you know, people come to me and they'll tell me about, for example, um, oh, I've been betrayed. You know, we've all been through it. You've been betrayed. I've been betrayed. It's part of life. Uh, oh, and, and, and they've let me down and they've done, and they, they kind of sit on the pity pot. And I'm not saying that we wouldn't allow people to express how hurt and, you know, sore they're feeling. But there is a point when we need to start to own up to betrayal isn't something that's exclusive to them out there. Yeah. Who have I betrayed? Mm. Have I betrayed anybody? Do you know? And none of us want to answer that. We're all, um, yeah, everybody has. Oh, I'm sure I probably have. Mm -hmm. uh, but I can't really think. And it's like, well, they, they, you know, take the stick out your own eye. You, mm -hmm. It starts with me. So where there's an issue like that, and I say one of my issues is trust, I need to work on becoming the trustworthy person. So it's like becoming the person I want to find. Mm -hmm. So one of the exercises I'll sometimes do, I've done myself and uh, and I did, uh, but certainly I would do with people who are saying, I want to be in a relationship. I say, make me a list of your ideal, your ideal partner. I don't tell them why. Uh, bring it back next time. You know, everything, you know, how, how you want them to be, how you want them to act, how you want them to feel about you, how they want, the kind of things that you would, the traits they would have, as many sentences as you can come up with, describe this ideal partner to me. And they come back with this Bible list. list, pictures, you know, mm -hmm. uh, perfect skin, perfect teeth, perfect everything. Uh, and, and then we say, okay, now go through the list and evaluate yourself on Highlight how many of them have you got? And you just see them like crumple, like, oh, mm -hmm. shit. Is that what like attracts like, though? Well, it's it's like we begin to realise mm -hmm. that we've got this expectation of this mm -hmm. person out there that doesn't exist. But I'm not showing up to the party and saying I've got any of these qualities. Is that a reflection of you and maybe how you should be then? It's what we're, what we're looking for out there, mm -hmm. what we haven't actually got ourselves. got ourselves. Or I believe we have got it. Mm -hmm. I believe everybody's got a huge big diamond inside of them, but you've got to get to it. And one of the ways to get to that is the peeling, mm -hmm. is getting over the, the crust of pain, hurt, shame, um, loss, you know, the griefs that we haven't really grieved properly. Our culture isn't very mm -hmm. good at dealing with loss How and do grief. You for loss because we'll touch on your book Love Never Dies and you speak about your dad quite a lot in this book mm -hmm. who saw it, sadly passed away to cancer. How do we deal with grief? I've lost countless people um, and I don't still don't think I've came to terms with any of it. Yeah. I always say I have and I'll do meditation, yoga, but there's something still rooted in there where I go, I ain't grieved properly yet because I'll cry a lot. I'm I'm a fucking greeter, do you know what I mean? I'll Good. cry a lot. No, but That's great. how do we 
deal with grief? How would you deal with grief? What advice would you give for people who's lost a loved one? Because people, I know people who's lost someone 20, 30 years ago who are still kind of angry and bitter and grieving. So, Well, I suppose the big thing is how it's affecting you. So, mm-hmm. you know, like sometimes I'll say, if you were given a sentence in prison of six weeks or six years, which is the one that would cause the most pain? Six years. Yeah. So grief's a bit like that. Grief's a bit like prison. You know, if 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 I haven't seen my father for three weeks, three months, or three years, or three decades, which is the longest sentence? You know, so we can miss people more over time because it's so long since I've seen you. You know, it's so long since we've done things together. Now, the, the you know, the, the, the system's set up really well in that when we have a, a loss, we get into shock. You know, but that shock can take weeks, months or years to wear off. So sometimes we move into what Freud called denial, where it's just like, my dad's still up the road. You know, he's really still up the road in Ochterarder playing golf. And I'll see him next Sunday. Mm-hmm. So and my granny, she's still up in a wee single end flat in Partick in Kennewy Drive and she's making scones and I'll be up there in a minute. So there's almost like there's a part of us that sometimes just doesn't quite, can't handle it. And that's a very good protective defence mechanism initially because we need that shock to help us to not completely fall apart, to deal with what needs dealt with, the funeral you know, the the, 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 mm-hmm. the making the arrangements, dealing with things, um, supporting each other. And then over time, eventually it begins to kind of seep in a bit that they're not coming. So it's a very, very protective defence mechanism. It's very worthwhile and useful. Mm. Um, what about grief? I think in our culture, because we're so much, uh, we're often very much externalised into everything's fine. I'm good, how are you? I'm fine, good, great, everybody's fine. Everybody's doing great, everybody's doing well. Nobody's got any problems. We don't cry, big boys don't cry, especially not in Glasgow. Mm. Uh, and we, we have this externalised thing and of course we've bought a lot of these kind of uh, have a nice day stuff. We've imported a lot of that. Uh, that everything's about being strong and tough and, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's phony. We know it's phony and we know it's false. But somehow we're looking around and everyone else is doing it and we think, well, I need to do that too and we need to pretend. Uh, and we we make less and less room in our culture and our world for vulnerability, for um, falling, for failing if such a thing exists and it's not just living. Um, so we deem certain traits acceptable and other ones not acceptable and one of those things that we don't really accept is grief so I'll see clients that will come to me and I certainly experienced it myself you should be over that now you should be past that stage what stage? what stage? Mm. who says you shouldn't grieve for someone that you lost 20 years ago because today something has touched you and and, uh, touched the, the hurting place and you oh, feel a pocket of loss or grief for that person. Who says you shouldn't express that or experience that? Who says that that should have happened 20 years ago? Yeah, Where no is that written? Time limit to say There that. is no time limit on mm-hmm. grief. There is none. Now, do I think, you know, that you should be, you know, you should die with them? No. No, that's quite different. So they're doing the work of grieving. 
And doing the work of grieving is um, one of the things that our culture does is it denies death because we all want to look 21. Yeah. Um, I was 60. Oh, oh, she just says oh. it. Last week, uh, and uh, I was laughing with you and saying I want to get the tipex out in 50. But I, in truth, of course, part of me does. But there's another part of me doesn't because I know that we live in a death-denying culture and it's not good mm. for us because it's one of the things that makes life so special is, you know, you don't know if you've mm. got tomorrow, so live for today scary, and enjoy that. it. It's yeah. scary to think as soon as you're born, you start to die. It's, yeah. And that's one of the things that pushes me out of my bed because I know I want to leave a legacy. I want to do things that nobody could even fucking dream of. And I want to show people, no matter where you're from, this is possible. Yeah. I you don't have time it. to yeah, waste. I ain't got time to be lying about in my bed and feeling sorry for myself. But I still do it. I will recharge. And we spoke about it earlier. I had four podcasts in the space of 24 hours last week. And mm. you come home and I'm flat. Four or five days, it's draining. Mm-hmm. But I need to get up again and fight mm-hmm. and push on because that, I've heard a lot of motivational speakers speak about it. That should be your only inspiration and motivation is to wake up and realise you're going to die. Yeah. You're going to fucking die. And th- and there's a kind of m- a myth in our culture that it'll be when you're 93, you know, and you're sitting in your rocking chair. I don't know that it's not going to be next Tuesday. Mm-hmm. I don't know that it's not going to be tonight. You know, and and having had a personal experience with with breast cancer, and having you know, my father was would have said that he was very blessed, and and he said himself, you know, I'm having a good death. He's he, he was 83. Uh, I held his hand as he was dying. I was there when he stopped breathing, and that's what he did. He just stopped breathing. I was talking to him and singing to him mm-hmm. seconds before he stopped breathing. Um, does that mean I didn't grieve him? No, absolutely not. It didn't mean I, d- I, I didn't grieve him and I didn't miss him. But but it, it did certainly help me uh, because it helped me to face up to the reality of death. It's as simple as that. One minute you're breathing, the next minute you're not. Um, and when we are around people who have died or, or we've lost people, it's it's an, a beautiful reminder that uh, this is pure gift. That next breath, that's not a given. Mm-hmm. What do you think of death? Uh, I don't believe in it. And of course, I believe in it all at the same time. So I believe that we are eternal. I believe there's a part of us that is eternal. Energies. I believe we have a soul, uh, whatever different cultures want to call that. But they all have words for it. Mm-hmm. All the different traditions have different words for this thing that we would, I would call soul, the spiritual part of us uh, that is a part of what others would call the higher power. God, Maya, Gaia, Allah, you know, uh, the, the Buddha, whatever you want to call it. Um, they all they all have different names for it, but there's this eternal, timeless um, level of existence, of consciousness that I believe we all have a spark of and we're all part of that big light. And I believe that we go home to wherever we came from. Mm-hmm. You know, where does the tomato seed come from? Mm-hmm. Do you ever read a book called Many Lives, Many Masters? Yes, Brian mm-hmm. Weiss. Yeah, um, Margaret Solis um, told me to read that book and it kind of makes sense to tell you that the shit and problems that you've got in this life, if you don't kind of sort it and face it, 
you get into your next life with the same problems, but they add an extra one on. Well, I, I'd go even further than that and say that, you know, if you, if, if you don't sort the problems out in this life, they just come back and hit you in the face till you do. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. you just keep coming up against mm-hmm. the same patterns mm-hmm. until you actually find the way through. You know, mm-hmm. it's like snakes and ladders. Yeah. Um, did, did, did I live before? Will I live again? I don't know. I'm not dead yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but most <laughs> of the world's population uh-huh. believe in reincarnation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, yeah. I'm open. Your book, Love Never Dies, I've read it over the last couple of days. You speak about your dad quite a lot about in, it, in this book. Yeah, Patrick. Why is that? Uh, because I loved him dearly and I missed him. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wrote a... I kind of I, I wrote some bloggy pieces about how I was feeling that people responded to on Facebook and said, you know, I find that really helpful. I lost my dad last year. I lost my mum two years ago. Um, can I? Do you have any more? And I was like, I'm, I'm only doing this because it's making me feel better today about how I'm feeling. I have always known the value in my retreats and my workshops of externalising through the spoken word or the written word. Um, and getting things out so um, I I saw no reason not to do it myself when I was going through my own grief Mm -hmm. and my own loss he um, he had pancreatic cancer he had six months when when he was diagnosed and we I actively moved right in with um, wanting to accompany him on that journey and uh, he also meditated and we spoke openly about his death and about dying mm-hmm. and about his life and his regrets and, you know, the spiritual journey and what he believed. And and it, it really felt like a great privilege. And I felt I had so many what I would have called spiritual experiences, synchronicities, coincidences, uh, beautiful times. And then he died and there was the process of what now after death. And I discovered that, I was having a, a totally different relationship with him, even mm-hmm. though his physical material ego self had died um, with a bigger picture mm-hmm. that was communicating with me uh, in very f- comforting ways. Do you think your bond got stronger then? I think the bond certainly got stronger yeah. after death. Yeah. You speak about, because I know your dad phoned you in the book, not give too much away, but your dad called you a month before he was diagnosed to light a candle for him, but you knew and your gut we, feeling We were that. in Edinburgh and he asked us if we would go across to the, we were going to a show that night. He was there with his partner, my husband Graham and I. When I when he walked into the reception of the hotel, I looked at him and I, I don't know how I knew, but I said to my husband up the stairs, I think my dad's dying. I don't, there's something not right and he said don't be silly he's tired he's an old man he's tired he said a long journey um, but that same night he said would we go to St Mary's Cathedral in Edinburgh across the road from the hotel and, and light a wee candle with him and meditate now the three of us have all meditated meditated for years my dad introduced me to meditation and I said oh dad we've just arrived we're busy we, you know, we want to get changed for the show and about 20 minutes later they phoned the room and said I'm across, I'm going across the now. He's wanting to come, and I said to, to my husband, "We need to go. We need to go right now." And as I sat in the the wee church with the candles lit, I knew, I knew right away that I didn't know I hadn't been diagnosed yet. I just knew that this was a pivotal moment, and Saint Mary's Church became a really important place of things happening in the following years, mm-hmm. uh, and still is, you know, um, but. But that moment was the moment where something in me knew, here we go, 
this is it. This is this is the beginning of the next big thing that's going to happen in your life and enjoy every moment because he's not going to be with you long. Mm-hmm. I didn't know at that time why or what. And it was within a matter of weeks that he had his diagnosis that he had six months to go. So your intuition and that, you'll be very in tune because you do Reiki and stuff as well? Everybody is in tune. Mm-hmm. If they quieten down the externals, everybody has intuition. Everybody has an inner teacher. So this isn't about me saying I'm some kind of special person with a special gift. Uh, this is For me, it's about, the book was partly about trying to say to people, you have this. Mm-hmm. We all have this ability to tune in, to tune in to another level of being. And um, it's not just some special mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. who often but charge a lot of money. It's a great book, by the way, and very Thank well you. written. And you can tell it's raw because it brought a lot of emotions back with myself and my own dad, where you think, because I felt like a failure for a long time. And my dad's not really, he never got to see my success and what I'm doing now because he kind of always believed it. Well, obviously, I've got my mum, my sister, my kids. But there's always something at thinking, because my dad used to always say, get your shit together, you've got a lot more to give. And I never believed him. He always believed in me. And when I was reading that, it kind of brings back a lot of emotions because he never got to say the great side of me that he always believed that I could never. have been. Nah. Not in the physical realm. Not in the physical, yeah, but... And it kind of, it brings back a lot of emotions as well. You speak about um, drowning and your dad saved you. What was that story? When I was five. Yeah. Uh, we were away for the day in Millport, which is full of shelves. And, you know, my father had his tweed trousers rolled up to the knees and he was lighting his pipe on the beach. And I'd followed my uncle Hugh out. And of course, Hugh had come off a ledge and started swimming but I thought he was still walking out. And of course I got to, he didn't know I was behind him. Mm-hmm. They were all busy. And I went right off the ledge and right down. And I was sparked. I was dead. I was going. I, I remember time stopping. I remember the whole thing in slow motion. Um, and then I was out and uh, my father just saw my head going down. Never heard the end of it, but he's good tweed trousers. Um, and <laughs> he saved me. Had he not looked down round when he did. Uh, I wouldn't be here and got me out and tipped me upside down and, you know, did the mouth to mouth heart stuff and brought me back round. I brought up my guts. Um, so, yes, without a shadow of a doubt, he saved my life at the mm-hmm. age of five. Scary uh, that, huh? Yeah. You're very big. You speak a lot about dreams as well. You're very big on dreams and when you're sleeping, what you're thinking about. Why is that also? Well, it's just another realm of, of our consciousness. Uh, of our being and I think we're probably in many ways closer to who we really are in that state because when we're awake we're very much ego based you know Mm. like again this external who I think the world wants me to be who I think I should be uh, you know uh, that there's a there's a much more vulnerable part of us that gets an opportunity to communicate and I think we can communicate on many levels so I've you know I have had dreams when my father's come in but they're, they're not a, they're not that often I did have one not that long ago um but they're not that often but when they happen they're beautiful it's like oh he was in my dream last night wow he was here and you know you you say about your dad not seeing uh you turning your life around, you know, how do you know your father wasn't directly right behind you? Mm-hmm. You know, no, no. guiding you. 
from mm-hmm. the other side in a way that he couldn't do in the mm-hmm. physical world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and believe me, he sees everything you're mm-hmm. doing. I've everything. Been to, I know some people don't agree with him, but I've been to many like spiritualists and, and they always say when they're in your room, I've got so many people guiding me. Yeah, so Wayne Dyer, the writer, uh, the American uh, kind of coach, teacher, used to say, uh, if you knew who walked beside you, you would never know fear again. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that stayed with me, that made the hairs in the back of my neck stand up. You know, it's mm-hmm. as if you knew who walks beside you, you would never know fear again. So how do we not know, how do we know that, 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 that our loved ones, without their physical overcoats, uh, aren't guiding us, aren't teaching us, mm-hmm. aren't speaking to us intuitively uh, to say, do that, do that, don't do that. Don't. And how often do we ignore it? Mm-hmm. You know, when, when you know you had the hunch don't do that. Don't listen to him. Don't trust her. Don't, mm-hmm. you know, they're not good. And, you know, and we're oh, no, no. And our ego talks us into mm-hmm. And then later on we go, I knew that. Mm-hmm. I knew I shouldn't have got involved with him, her, it, that. Mm-hmm. I knew that wasn't me. I knew that wasn't the right path. Yeah, but I betrayed myself. Mm-hmm. That's a lesson, isn't it? That's a it's lesson growing. where you've yeah, got to learn your mistakes and... Yeah, everything's a process, I believe. And every mistake that we make, I try and... Why did I do it? I'm trying to figure out the people that's coming into my life and always say it, like attracts like. And I believe the higher frequency you become, you attract those frequencies into your life. But you always need those curveballs. Yeah, and 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 if we can remember that it is an earth school, hmm. you know, that that's why we're here. We're hmm. here to, <coughs> excuse me, develop ourselves to grow and how do we do that? Well, we need lessons, mm-hmm. as you said, life lessons. So when you started the Harvest Clinic, which in my opinion is one of the biggest clinics in Scotland, it's amazing what you do in there, from Reiki, massages, the psychological side of things, it's all natural. You've got so many different courses that people can get involved in as well. What was your goal then when you started the Harvest Clinic? Never had one. Never had one. It all unfolded. It just mm-hmm. all bit by bit unfolded uh, originally. I just knew that I wanted to train in therapy because I knew how much it helped me. I had no clue how I was going to do that. I started off um, working for nothing, you know, volunteering. And um, I, I remember doing talks on, as I trained as a, a clinical hypnotherapist originally, and I remember doing uh, talks on self-hypnosis. My granny would be there, my grandpa would be there. Some nights my mother and father would be there and they would alternate it uh, because it was a in- free introductory talk. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and sometimes one person turned up, you know, um, and I would go through my spiel. Uh, so I was thinking, how can this ever evolve into anything? I never had any sense that it was going to grow into anything worth uh, anything. I thought I'm going to be back in work in no time. So originally I was still working in my daytime job um, and doing this on the side evenings and weekends, these talks and we free lectures and volunteering. And uh, and then eventually two people or three people turned up and then eventually, and, and I was ready to throw the towel in. My first training was, was a bit ropey. And my father went down to another coincidence, went down to Champney's Health Spa and Tringway's pals. He was a great runner. And they went away for a, a kind of training weekend. And he met this hypnotherapist in London, Michael Joseph. And he said, oh, my daughter does what you do. It turned out we trained at the same school. And he said, oh, I found the training a bit patchy. And he said, ah, she's really struggling. She's not sure how to get a foothold. And he said, oh, tell her if she's ever down in London to come and see me. So 
lesson ding for anybody listening uh, when life throws you an opportunity not a curveball an opportunity grab it with both hands so when he came back and said and this guy he's really successful he's working at Champneys and trying with the celebrities and Ruby Wax and, and uh, Stephen Fry and you know they're all going to see him he said if you're ever in London so I'm on to the bus station to book my over nice bus ticket that night because mm-hmm. I'm going to London and I'm going to kid on, I'm just passing by. Uh, and I went to see Michael and he spent a whole afternoon talking to me about what I knew, what I didn't know and invited me to come and be part of his first training course as a supervisor because I had a degree in psychology and I'd already done a training, patchy as it was. So I went along um, and I travelled up and down to London in the days before Ryanair and cheap flights. I travelled up and down to London on my weekends, working full time during the week, just to get soak up the knowledge. And this gift, this opportunity that might have passed me by, and it changed my life. Um, so I'd, I'd, I supported him on his first training, and then I said, "Could we bring? Why is there the good training in London? Could we bring this up to Glasgow?" And he said, well, you set it up and I'll come up. And he came up and then he eased his way out and said, right, go for it. On you go, you do it. And I did that. I'm, I, you know, I've still been doing it. That's mm-hmm. that's uh, 30 odd years now. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. Mind you, he passed mm-hmm. six months after my father. So it was a, it was mm-hmm. a kind of double loss, you know, losing mm-hmm. one. Uh, my father and then losing the guy who had been really my mentor mm-hmm. in the early stages of my career. Mm-hmm. So... You opened Tavis Clinic, but the biggest fight in your life is when you go to the big C. Yeah, is cancer. It, 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 um, that, that, that was a fairly big fight. Um, was it the biggest win? Uh, I, I dare say you don't scale these things. They're mm-hmm. just, they're, they're challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Uh, check your breast girls. Um, my friend who lost her mother to cancer uh, noticed when we were away on holiday and we were topless sunbathing and she said, You've got an indent. I didn't even know what an indent was. You know, I, I knew I had no lumps, but I didn't know about indents. Mm-hmm. And I had an indent and had not in any way related that. Um, so uh, she said, get that checked when you go back. By coincidence, there's that word again. By coincidence, there was a letter from a regular mammogram when I came back. And I thought, oh, strike two. Mm-hmm. And her teacher intuition says, here we go. And went along and they said, need to check it out. And the rest was history. So I had a mastectomy, uh, had chemotherapy. Didn't know right away I would need it all, but then needed chemotherapy and then needed radiotherapy treatment after that, which finished last November, -November. Mm mid-November. So it was a year of pretty intensive Mm -hmm. um, healing and recovery. And uh, another journey into love and this time being completely receiving because I couldn't offer much to anybody. So I was on the receiving end of all the love and support uh, that was around from family and friends Mm -hmm. and colleagues. Which is a good thing because for over 30 years you've also helped others change and make their belief system stronger and show them love. Was it difficult for someone who's working in your job to go and speak to someone to because as we can speak all the time, but it's hard to put it into practice what we speak because we're helping mm-hmm. so many people. Is it is it anyone you can go and speak to? Do you feel I need to get this off? Yeah, I have this. a spiritual director. Mm-hmm. Um, I have someone who I who I 
uh, speak to deeply about my heart. Mm -hmm. I'm very lucky in that my husband's a psychotherapist too. So I'm very, very lucky and blessed that I can share a lot with him. But there's a lot that you can, you know, when you're in a marriage, you can't just expect the other person to take the, the load for absolutely everything. You know, you mm -hmm. can't lean on them uh, to, to, to they're exhausted. So I, I realised that there were things that I needed to be able to speak about that perhaps... Uh, was expecting a lot of him to take everything on board. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I very much use my my, my spiritual director, um, who's uh, she's a she's a, a I don't want to give anything away. Who she is, I'll give her an anonymity. But um, she's an a, a nun in an enclosed order, uh, mm -hmm. who has the wisdom of the sages, and I trust her implicitly. Um, so that's my safe place and that's my safe mm -hmm. space at this in my career, point in my career. But m uh, most of my life, I've had a supervisor for my work mm -hmm. because in the work that I do, we really should be checking out that we're not taking our own stuff into the mm -hmm. consulting room. So, um, you know, I, I have had a, a clinical supervisor and that would be somebody that mm -hmm. I would be able to go and speak so to. So how was it then the first time you get told that you had cancer mentally? How was that? Did you think but to yourself? But the time it happened, I think I kind of knew it was coming. I'd gone through it with my mum 10 years ago. My mum's fully recovered and, and, and amazing, 83-year-old. Um, but it, when it happened, you know, it doesn't just happen overnight. You go for the, the mammogram uh, and then you get called back. So you know something might not be right. And then when the woman wearing the nice uh, sort of Lord Ashley clothes comes down and says do you want to come with me? You realise that she's not wearing a nurse's outfit. Uh, so what does she want to talk to me about? And then they very gently, they're brilliant. These people are brilliant. They're amazing. Uh, they very, very gently and they deliver things in droplets, you know, so you get time to take things in. The, the irony was when the doctor actually told me that yes, that they believed it was a tumour and that, 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 that there would need to be treatment for it. Um, although they don't tell you at that stage what it is, because they don't sh truly know. Uh, that that session ended with me comforting her. She was in tears, and I was telling her it was okay. She was all right. That she'd done a great job, mm -hmm. um, and that she was very good at her job. I just can't believe mm -hmm. you're taking it so well. Uh, so I had a great empathy and understanding for how difficult her job was, mm -hmm. and all of the people who were involved in my treatment how difficult it was for all of them, the nurses, and it was just what an amazing job they do. Mm -hmm. They're doing that all day, every day. Yeah, I don't think nurses and people like that get the credit they deserve. Even oh. my mum's a home help as well. She works for Codder and the women, the work that these women and oh. men do, cleaning up shit and blood every day. Saints. And they're getting paid buttons. It's, um, it's phenomenal. And mm -hmm. that they should get the respect because... If it went for these people, man, there'd be dead bodies everywhere. No, they're, they're, I call them the ordinary angels. Mm -hmm. They're in our midst all the time and we don't, we, our culture just doesn't mm -hmm. value them nearly enough. Do you think your job with what you understand with the brain and the mindset and the belief system helped you through your cancer as well? I think without a shadow of a doubt, you know, the things that I had learned, I've worked with cancer patients for many years uh, all of that came back to me. All of that was useful and helpful. Um, and what I've tried to do in the book that I'm currently writing, which is called Greet, Pray, Love, which is a wee play on the book Eat, Pray, Love, uh, but it's Dancing with the Chancer, because, uh, you know, there's one thing right away. I didn't call it cancer. I called it the chancer. And people would say, oh, is that because it's like a wee horrible wee thing? It's a wee chancer. And I would say, no. 
I could have had a heart attack. I could have had a stroke. I could have had an aneurysm or an embolism. And boom, you're gone. I've got another chance. So mm-hmm. you get a chance with cancer. Now, it might be you just get the chance to write your will. You just get the chance, like my father did, to put everything in order and to spend time, real quality time, with the people that he loved to make sure everyone knew that he loved them and for him to receive all the love that he said later. He didn't realise how much he was loved or by how many. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a box up the stairs with cards like that thick. Uh, and I remember my husband saying to me, it must be marvellous to get all of that while you're still alive. Mm-hmm. People, and they weren't just writing love from Mary, they were writing, Angela, I want to tell you what you mean to me. And mm-hmm. do you, you won't remember, but see that day that you, and I'm like, I don't, I don't mm-hmm. even remember that. Um, he said, you're having a living funeral. You're, you're actually getting all the wonderful things that you would want people mm-hmm. to say to you. And people who I knew, by the way, some of them, it was get it off their chest quick in case I did die because <laughs> some of them had been real shits mm-hmm. and done the dirty, but I knew it was it was tant- mm-hmm. tantamount to an apology. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't always get as far as mm-hmm. apologising, but um, the people were kind of crawling out the woodwork. And even that was lovely because I was able to say, in my heart of hearts, I don't hold any resentment yeah. now. What you did wasn't very nice. Mm-hmm. I didn't like it at the time, but hey, I'm moving into forgiveness. That's where you realise that life is too short. Oh, it and matter. it says rest in peace when people die, but they also say we should live in peace. Oh, totally. So you to let things go, you to put things down. And um, I I think the, the biggest lesson for me was just in, you know, why don't we tell each other these things while we're alive? Mm-hmm. Why do we wait till hear somebody might be dying or has died? Um, so this box of cards to me is more than a box of cards. It's a reminder to me to keep letting the people, you know, shower the people you love with love and um, come from love as much as you feasibly can. You're human, you'll get it wrong. But... Um, Oh, you know, what a shame if I hadn't got to read any of those cards. They'd mm-hmm. been sent to Graham after I'd gone. Mm-hmm. I remember the day. She was always such and such to me. She was an amazing woman. I actually got to read all that stuff. Mm-hmm. My job was to, to try and take it in. That was hard. Mm-hmm. Trying to keep breathing in that, you know, these people that were saying, I love you. That was, they were all telling different stories, mm-hmm. but they were all saying, I love you. And it, all it was doing was making me feel more love. So, um, when I'm when I'm when I'm writing the Greek Pray Love uh, pages for the for the next book that I'm doing, um, it's very much focused on these chronic illnesses and these these cancers, chancers that we get. These situations, they're all opportunities mm-hmm. if we allow them to be. You can see it as a destructive illness, or you can see it as, hey, I'm still here, and I've got another chance. I've still got the chance to tell people I love them. Because a lot of people didn't wake up this morning. Mm-hmm, and I'm still here. Do you think it's gave you a wee kick up the ass as well? Totally. Where totally. you think, all oh, right, wait a minute. It's too short. I, I've got still got a lot of work to do and a lot more to do. But you, I get, you, you question everything. Yeah. You question everything you're involved in and see. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I don't think everything in life has is, is got to bring you joy. But if there are ongoing things that are bringing you pain and discomfort, it might behoove you mm-hmm. to explore them and say, 
entirely want this to be a major part of my life. Mm-hmm. Not that I don't think suffering is useful. Suffering is very useful mm-hmm. and we learn a lot from it. But um, it does make you kind of do the life review and say, right, how do I want my life mm-hmm. to be for whatever time I've got left? And I'm hoping that's going to be a long healing hearty life. Years, yeah. uh, but what do I want it to be about? And as you said yourself, hey, why am I still here? I made it, other guys didn't. Mm-hmm. I'm still here. Mm-hmm. What, what, what is it I'm here to do? How can I love more? How can I share more? And how can I help other people mm-hmm. to love themselves better mm-hmm. and love other people more? And I always say, as long as you've got air in your lungs, you've always got something to give. No matter For where sure. you are, what you're doing, you've always got something to give. And everything's a process of learning from whether it's cancer, whether it's losing a loved one. What is the what is the answers I can get from that? What is a lot of people look for problems, but we should really be looking for the solutions. Mm. And everything that's whether it's cancer that you've had, or it's definitely it gives you a kick up the arse. You go, wait a minute, I've still got a lot to give. I've still got a lot to do, a lot to change. But you can learn from it, grow from it. How was it then from that process going through your chemo? Did you ring the bell? Yes, I rang two bells. <laughs> Not just one, sure. but two. Yeah. Uh, always go for extra. Mm-hmm. So I got to ring a bell after chemotherapy finished. That emotional that day? Oh, well, my family turned up. Um, my family were there uh, and uh, we went for lunch after it. And then the second time was after my radiotherapy finished. And my husband was there and I knew he'd taken me, uh, but I didn't know my stepson David was going to be there because it was a working day and we thought, I thought, I've done it. I did it after chemotherapy. So, you know, mm. don't don't milk it. And it was really lovely. And when I came out, um, we, we got out into the, 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 the hall and my, my husband got down on one knee and gave me a beautiful ring, which is the ring that I'm wearing. Wearing, I'm wearing mm. it. Uh, I'm wearing it which was a, a, a very important design. It's actually a cast, a silver cast of a barnacle. Mm-hmm. Um, which What's for a me, barnacle? A barnacle's, um, it's, it's, a, 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 it's a wee mollusk that clings to piers. It's mm-hmm. what you would see clinging to piers. And I was talking about the tenacity of the barnacles. You can't get them off. You can't get them off at all. Such tenacity. Uh, and when I saw the ring, uh, I said, you know, that's really gorgeous. That's just a cast of a, this mm-hmm. woman, this artist only does shells and she casts them in silver. And he got me the ring and he, he for that day, he, he got down and said uh, lovely things to me. Mm-hmm. But what was lovely was my stepson caught it on camera. Uh, on camera and that's why he'd come along. Um, and that was marking the end of it. For me also, it kind of reminded me of the cancer itself mm-hmm. and the gift of cancer. Because yeah. there are gifts in all of these mm-hmm. Horrible things that happened to us that we would say, oh, I wish I hadn't had that, I wish that didn't have to happen to anybody. But I think life is about being able to see the light in the darkness. Definitely. And that's a good thing. And it's the thing that you're trying to take positives from it, as much as it makes you appreciate life, it also makes people who are surrounded by you, surrounded around you, appreciate you. Because would you have done that if you never had cancer? Would your stepkids and grandkids start loving you more and go, wait a minute, they could go any time. It starts making people appreciate you for what you do and what you've become and who you help. And we take that for granted. Mm. We take it for These granted. These things are, you know, any, anything that's close to death is a wake up call. Mm-hmm. You know, and even if it's just somebody cuts out in front of you in the motorway and you have to slam the brakes on, you get that, oh, mm-hmm. it's that realisation that that could have been it. 
It's as simple as that. That could have been it. So, you know, do I want to go to sleep on an argument? Is this worth fighting about? Do I need to score points? Does it matter if you've got the control for the telly? Usually the answer to that is yes, very much so. There are some things that are Mm -hmm. non-negotiable, but, you know, we we, we can spend so much of our lives uh, embroiled in trivia and things that really don't matter. Power plays. So what is that then? Is that the ego? It's the child, you know. What is the ego then? So the the ego is the externalised part of us in the world that, 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 that our sense of self... So, that, who we a, think we should be or so, who we so are. So Jung, well, well whose society's also taught us to be, Jung uh, talked about the, the false self uh, and the true self. Um, and the, the false self is the ego, is, is the part of us. So, we, 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 you know, the first half of life um, is the part of our lives. It's not necessarily literally mathematically the half of our life where we build up who we are in the world who I want you to see me to be who is Angela the great Angela trainer and um, you know the masks that I wear uh, so I am my job I am a hypnotherapist I'm a psychotherapist I'm the harvest clinic um, I am I am I am the great the, the great I am second half of life should be a bit letting go should be, should be about learning to let go of these masks and costumes and the need for me to impress you, the need for me to acquire, to achieve. So that first half of life is about building up, building up. We want to get a partner, we want to get home, we want to get the job, we want, you know, all the things we want to get, they're all externals. The second half of life is where we move into the true self and that is, far more of an inner journey than an external journey where we're building up things and experiences and that's where we begin to realise that having achieved all these things they're all lovely and wonderful and great for a while but actually there's more to be discovered and that's where we mine on the inside Mm -hmm. and where we should in the second half of life be learning to let go of the need for these things to not need to attach and cling on nearly so much to these external roles um, where who I am is not dependent on my job mm-hmm. who I am is not dependent on my girlfriend or my husband or you know I, 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 it's discovering who I really am and that's beyond all these roles because mm-hmm. I speak to a lot of gangsters Angela well former criminals people who have done a lot of bad in life but when you actually break it down I don't glorify these men but when you actually break it down you'll tend to see a lot of these guys were bullied or abused when they mm. were younger. Mm. So the defence mechanism comes in where they hold a gun or a knife. That's their shield of protection. Mm. It's wrong, yes, but that's their way of trying to not get hurt again. Mm-hmm. And was before I remember meeting you last year or two years ago, we spoken about the inner child. Um, can you explain to people who are watching what the inner child is? So the inner child's a marvelous part of us. It's 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 not uh, you know it's not a physical part in our bodies, but it's a part in our sense of self and it's our experiences. Um, it's very vulnerable. It's very creative. It's very magical. So so the the magical child is all the beautiful aspects of our vulnerability, our wonderfulness, our awe. 
mm-hmm. uh, our, our fascination. If you think about, you know, you used to jump off the couch and think you were jumping off the Empire State Building with a tea towel down the back of your neck. Um, all these things, that the ability to use the imagination. And, and we all have this wonderful reservoir of uh, magicalness within us, and that's the magical child, uh, the inner child. And many of us have the wounded inner child or the damaged inner child. And that is that that magical wonderment got knocked out of us. We got the stuff and knocked out of us one way or another. Whether it was through abandonment, whether it was through abuse, whether it was through rejection, whether it was through, and abuse can take all sorts, emotional, physical, sexual, um, that, that we got stunted in life at one point. We realised that it was a scary place. And some of us, it, for some of us, that part of us get frozen in time. And that part can take over on a regular basis. Now, for some people who are really damaged, it can take over their lives. And they allow that damaged inner child says, I'll never trust anyone again. So, you know, whatever the survival strategies were that you developed, you continue to use them in your daily life today, even though the war's over. Mm-hmm. Before we finish up, we'll touch on a couple of more things, but the law of attraction, the secret, I see a lot of people talking about it. It's not just a case of visualising things. I believe you've got to believe it, first of all. But you've got to work your ass off to get it. What's your your opinion on the law of attraction? I know you've spoke about it at the end of your book. You mm. speak about the mindset and the belief. And if you do something consistent, it can change the way you think, the way you feel. How do you feel about the visualisation kind of things when it talks about the law of attraction? Uh, you know, I think it's lovely. I think it's at entry level. Uh, entry level spirituality is fine. Um, the idea that if we begin to believe uh, and, and look for the good in ourselves and others and in, in situations um, that we will manifest more of the good in our lives. My problem is with it all is if you get stuck at the material level, that it, it becomes like God is Santa. You know, if I just think I want that, then mm-hmm. I'll get it. And it's like, is that it? Is that, is, you know, and sometimes what I say is, hey, look, all these amazing books have been out since the 1960s. Look at the state of the world. Mm-hmm. Come on, there's more to it than this. Yeah. Don't get stuck as God is Santa. You know, look, if we can begin to look more at the, the potential of recognising that you are a spiritual being, being human, and that there's more to life than getting the girl, getting the car, getting the silver bracelet, getting the job. If we get stuck at that material, physical level, we know that if we think positively and we focus on you know, positive things, we'll tend to manifest more mm-hmm. of that in our lives. But don't stop there. Don't stop at mm-hmm. uh, manifesting stuff. And, and everybody can't have a jet and an island in Fiji. You know, sorry, mm-hmm. Tony Robbins, but everybody mm-hmm. can't. Uh, we need to say, well, if, you know, if there's any truth in this, um, what if we were to allow ourselves to be used for the greater good? What if we were to move into service? And what if we were to be in the flow of that loving, benevolent energy that I would call grace? And what if I was to say, use me, you know, mm-hmm. rather than what can I get? I want mm-hmm. I want a new Rolex. Uh, what it, for anybody watching um, who's maybe in the struggle and looking for some advice from books, what books would you say is good read for someone who's maybe trying to get a bit of self-help or a better understanding? 
Um, that, that's really going to depend. I'm obviously going to see my own book. Of course, <laughs> apart from Love Never Dies. Yeah, advert. yeah. Uh, no, I'm joking. Uh, no, no. Um, <laughs> so, so some of the some of the books I mentioned when earlier on, I think Awareness by Anthony DeMello. That mm-hmm. might be a wee bit too down the spiritual path for some people, but I I think it's an amazing book. Another favourite of mine is um, The Road Less Travelled by M. Scott Peck. Uh, who was a top American psychotherapist, and it's an absolutely amazing book. Um, but one of the, the one of the basics was a book that I read way, 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 way back. And it goes way back to the sixties, and that was Louise Hayes. You can heal your life. Ah, that's a powerful. Um, uh, there's another one I can't remember the name of. Um, I can't, I can't remember the name of the author. Is it Carol Truman? But I think it's a K A R O L, uh, and it's feelings buried alive never die. Uh, that's 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 as it says in the title. Um, I could go on all day about amazing books, but those would be the ones that would be good out. kind of general mm-hmm. ones. Mm-hmm. So, plans for the future? Then you've got yourself fit and healthy again. I'm getting myself fit and What's healthy the plans again. Then you're going to go back to work? Are you going to yeah, take no, more time? I've not off? really stopped. I mean, I kind of stopped and that I couldn't physically go to work. But you know, I'm doing this. I'm mm-hmm. involved in a few speaking projects, and uh, I'm still writing. I'm writing the Great Pray Love book, um, which is for cancer for people or or those those affected by cancer or those around them who, who might be looking for support and advice. Um, so I will begin back to seeing clients eventually, but I'm, I'm going to take the chance to pare things down a bit, uh, cut back a wee bit, bit, back, back a wee bit on the work front. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the things that came out for me was that I, there were a lot of places when I thought I might not make it, which you do when you get a diagnosis, mm-hmm. You know, I thought, ah, oh, I never got to see. I wanted to go to Budapest. You know, mm-hmm. I wanted to go to Istanbul. Uh, there's things I wanted. I wanted to go away. I wanted to have a camper van for a month. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were a lot of things that were on the bucket list, uh, which I now call the lucky list, and say I'm very lucky I've got the chance to do these things. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of things I want to do that mean I want a healthier work-life balance. I think probably I have been working too hard for too long and I need to ease off the gas a wee bit in that front. So I'm going back, but I'm going back at a much more gentle pace. Do you think that's made you realise that you need to, instead of, it's great to help others, but you also need to help yourself. You must. Yeah, and everybody's got these bucket lists, but the majority of people don't follow them through because they always think they've got time. Yeah. When really... Went, you don't, don't know. know. Yeah, we've you no don't got a clue. Know. Your book, Love Never Dies, we'll put it in the description. Great book for the links. People can get this Amazon. Amazon paperback, uh-huh. Kindle or Audible. Mm-hmm. You'd think I'd never done this before. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And how can people, and we'll put the, a TEDx interview, which I think is 17, 18 minutes long. Um, we'll put your social media links as well. Oh, for anybody maybe want to get involved and maybe want to have a chat with you or maybe get you to have a talk. How can they get your information? So they can contact the Harvest Clinic, which mm-hmm. is just www.harvestclinic.co.uk is the website and the email's on there, but it's info at harvestclinic.co.uk. We'll put all that in the description. But before we finish up, you've got a wee Robin here at the front cover. There's a story behind us. Yeah. You want to tell the story? Yeah. So the Robin, uh, spiritually, some people say that the Robin signifies a message from uh, those on the other side. And... Um, I do tell lots of stories in the book, but they're still ongoing that um, 
When my father died, robins were just a non-going feature in my life. They've came to the window, they've landed virtually on my hand, they tap the window to me uh, and it's been an ongoing motif that has just gone on. And often when I would be at my lowest ebb, you know, my worst moment or really missing them terribly. Uh, and I would even cry out and say, I miss you, Dad. You know, I'd turn sign. around and there'd be a wee robin sitting right on that branch there. Um, so it's been a constant theme of the appearance mm-hmm. of the robin. Do you think that's for people who's maybe passed away for them to come back and show that they're still here or it's a sign or it's... I don't guide. think my dad's a robin. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think he's, he's. I talk about butterflies and the wild geese. I don't think he's a wild goose or a butterfly, mm-hmm. but I believe that we're all one. And I believe that when our egos and our overcoats go, we go back to being part of the ocean again, where we were a wave. During our life, we're a wave. And we think we're on our own. We're just a wave and you're a mm-hmm. wave and he's a wave. Uh, but actually, we're all part of the ocean. But we don't realise we're part of the ocean very much. We think we're a wave. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we do our dance up onto the beach. Um, but actually, you're part of the ocean. I believe that when we pass over the veil, we go back into the ocean and we're the ocean again. We're not a separate wave. So I believe that nature is very much the ocean. Mm-hmm. So I believe that the ocean can talk to us. It's not that my father, as he was Pat Trainer, mm-hmm. uh, is a Robin. It's that he has given up that ego self, false mm-hmm. self, you know, yeah. and he's become part of the ocean again. Mm-hmm. But the ocean is everything in nature. And if you listen, nature speaks. Yeah, and I think... A lot of people who have lost a loved one can maybe hear a certain song or see a robin or a butterfly mm. and it just gives them that wee peace of mind that that is someone that they lost and it makes them feel better and if it makes them feel better then go for it and you know how to listen yeah. and you listen to your intuition you quieten mm. things down and you learn some of the things that we've spoken about mm. as ways of fine-tuning your radio signal remember the old radio yeah. grams that they had mm-hmm. and you, they put it on during the war Different you know and, and it went, mm-hmm. that's what our lives are like but if you keep tuning, tuning. eventually you'll mm-hmm. get it into stereo sound mm-hmm. and it's learning the things that you know help to keep you tuned in mm-hmm. and 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 then the answers come Angela it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on to hear your story and it's great happy birthday again she has 60 everyone oh shush um, but <laughs> It's good to see you fighting fit again. Thank and you very much. I can't much. wait to read just your next book. Um, no doubt we'll keep in touch. Plenty more on the pipeline. So thank you. Thanks very much, James. Thank, thank you. You can also watch my podcast on my YouTube channel. The link is in the bio if you'd like to subscribe. You can follow me on my social media platforms to see who my next guest is. Follow me on Facebook at James English 11, Twitter, James English 0, Instagram, James English 2. You can also download these podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Sports Social Podcast Network.